0: let me ask you to open up in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter 9, Exodus chapter 9, after a couple of Sundays away, we now return to our study of the 10 plagues that God brought upon the nation of Egypt, this morning we come to the 6th Plague. Uh, There was an interesting story that appeared in the Times of Israel last year. The headline read this way, Israel to pay for ten plagues? Egyptian journalist demands that his government sue Jewish state for heavenly punishments described in Exodus. Uh, The paper was reporting on an opinion piece that was written for an Egyptian newspaper. Uh, Ahmad al-Jamal, the Egyptian columnist advocating this lawsuit, wrote, We want compensation for the plagues that were inflicted upon us as a result of the curses that the Jews' ancient forefathers cast upon our ancient forefathers who did not deserve to pay for the mistake that Egypt's ruler at the time, Pharaoh, committed. Jamal continues, For what is written in the Torah proves that it was Pharaoh who oppressed the people of Israel rather than the Egyptian people. But they inflicted upon us the plague of locusts that didn't leave anything behind them, the plague that transformed the Nile's waters into blood so that nobody could drink for a long time, The plague of darkness that kept the world dark day and night. The plague of frogs and the plague of the killing of the firstborn. Now, uh, these are events that happened 3,400 years ago. But this Egyptian man wants the modern Jewish state to pay up for these damages on on the people of Egypt. I'm not sure what the statute of limitations is on something like this, but there's more. Uh, This man called for compensation for all of the materials that the Israelites took out of Egypt when they left that nation. He said, we want compensation for the gold, the silver, the copper, the precious stones, the fabrics, hides, and lumber, for all the animal meat, hair, hides, and wool, and for other materials. All these materials that the Jews used in their rituals... These are resources that cannot be found among desert wanderers unless they took them before their departure. It's interesting in his appeal that Egypt sued Israel for uh, for compensation concerning these plagues. He nowhere mentions the fact that the Jews were actually slaves uh, in in Egypt. Uh, If the Egyptians can sue for the damages caused by the plagues, then can the Jews now sue for the, the centuries of hardship uh, and slavery that they endured. I bring that article to our attention for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, I just found it interesting uh, that somebody would argue that today. Uh, but more importantly, it raises the question of whether or not God was right to bring these plagues upon the nation of Egypt. Because Al Jamal's argument is that Pharaoh was the one sinning. Why did the whole nation have to suffer for this one man's sins? Well, I think there are a couple of responses to that. First, when we look carefully at what the book of Exodus tells us, we find that it is not just Pharaoh who is guilty here. It is the people of Egypt who have enslaved the Israelites. Egypt as a nation participated in the policy Of killing the infant sons of the Israelites. Egyptians served as slave masters and as overseers. As much of a dictator as the Pharaoh might have been, he could never have kept Israel in slavery if the Egyptian people had been adamantly against it. And so the idea that the Egyptian people were somehow innocent in this whole matter is just wrong. But then second, we need to remember the idea of federal headship. Uh, Throughout the Scriptures, God relates to people in part based on the actions and attitudes of those who represent them. Uh, The clearest example is Adam, the head of the human race. His fall was our fall. His sin was our sin. The curse that came upon Adam as our representative is our curse. In the same way, Christ is the federal head of Christians. God treats us who are Christians with love and acceptance and with peace because that is how he relates to our representative in heaven, Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the people of Christ. And it is through Christ as our federal head that we enter into the love of God. In the Old Testament, God often judged nations based on the actions of their leadership. You see, there's always a direct connection between people and their leadership. Uh, If the leadership is corrupt, the people will soon become corrupt. As well. And thus, when God is addressing a sinful nation in the prophets, he often speaks directly and forcefully against the rulers, the priests, and the false prophets. Those in leadership positions are often targeted first. In the New Testament, this is one of the reasons why Christians are taught to be so careful about who they install as leaders in their local churches. As the leadership goes, so will go the church. In fact, this principle is one biblical reason that was given for why America was right to rebel against the British king in the Revolutionary War. King George was considered to be a wicked, oppressive ruler by the colonists, and many believed they had a duty before God to come out from under his leadership or they would suffer the consequences of his wickedness. So with all that said, let's look together at our sixth plague here in Exodus 9, beginning in verse 8. Exodus 9, beginning in verse 8, and this is the word of God. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, And let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So five plagues have come and gone. and Each plague has gotten increasingly more and more severe, and Pharaoh has refused to give in. He will not submit to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the true God. And thus, this sixth plague comes. I'm going to make just four observations about this plague. First, this plague began in a way that left no doubt as to where it came from. This plague began in a way that left no doubt as to where it came from. In other words, there was simply no way that Pharaoh could explain away this plague as a mere natural occurrence. This isn't the God of Moses taking credit for something he didn't do. The way this plague began makes clear this is the work of God. How did it begin? Well, following the instructions of God, Moses went and stood before Pharaoh. And he took soot from a kiln. Now, what's a, what's a kiln? Kids, teenagers, do you know what a kiln is? A kiln is a furnace. And in this case, it was likely the kind of furnaces that the Israelites used for burning bricks. Many enslaved Israelite men would have spent a great deal of time around these kilns preparing the bricks that they were using as slaves in the great construction projects of Egypt. John Courage says this furnace was a symbol of oppression for the Hebrews. The sweat and the tears that they were shedding to make these bricks for the Egyptians. So now Moses comes to this symbol of oppression, these kilns that so many Israelite slaves had worked with in making these bricks, and Moses takes black soot from one of these kilns, and before Pharaoh's eyes, he throws the soot into the air. And what happens? It transforms into dust in the wind, and the dust begins to travel Throughout all the kingdom of Egypt, just as Christ multiplied the fish and the loaves, so this handful of soot becomes dust covering the entire nation. And as the dust hit the people of Egypt, it afflicted them with boils, and with sores. There could be no mistake. This is God bringing judgment upon the Egyptians in some small measure for the ways in which they've oppressed his people. The soot from the brick kiln has now become a plague on the Egyptian people. Well, second, note that this is the first plague to afflict the Egyptians directly. The first plague to afflict the Egyptians directly. Uh, Other plagues had an indirect effect on the people of Egypt. right? Frogs, mosquitoes, dead livestock. These all had, had were, were terrible annoyances, had terrible uh, consequences for the people of Egypt. But in this case, the plague actually afflicts them. They are the ones affected with the boils and, and the sores. Now, we're not completely sure what kind of sickness this was. Uh, one of the most popular suggestions, and it has been for 150 years now, is that this was some form of skin anthrax that God sent upon the people. And that's because that seems to fit the description that we're given pretty well. Skin anthrax causes the skin to swell, to to form boils, and then peeling begins to take place, and the skin tissue becomes discolored with this blackened, burnt kind of look. And that kind of fits the picture since it would appear as if the black soot from the kiln was now affecting the people and becoming a curse on them, affecting their own skin with this nastiness. Skin anthrax is quite dangerous. It can be fatal. Now, whatever skin disease this was, it is referenced one other time in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 28. And there God warns his own people, Israel, that if they fall into the same sinful practices as Egypt, or as the other pagan peoples, they too will experience these same kind of judgments. And God says to His own people in Deuteronomy 28, The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, and with tumors, and with scabs, and with itch, of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs, with grievous boils of which you cannot be healed, from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. And so this supports the idea that this curse brought upon the Egyptians, it was not some mild skin irritation. This was a quite serious disease that came upon the Egyptian people. Now by the way, let's remember that a distinction is being made here. Because the Israelites are not affected by this plague. It's only the Egyptians who are affected. And this was even more evidence, clear evidence, that this was the sovereign work of God, declaring to Pharaoh, declaring to the Egyptian people, that the Hebrew God is the one true almighty God, and that they should submit to him and let his people go. Third observation. Note that this is the last time that we will see Pharaoh's magicians. This is the last time we will see Pharaoh's magicians. In the first three plagues, the magicians played an important role. They tried to match what God could do. By the third plague, they could no longer compete on any scale. Uh, By the third plague, they had said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh had refused to listen. But while the magicians have been out of the picture for the latest plagues, it is actually here that we see the magicians truly and utterly defeated. For here, not only can they not imitate this plague, they themselves are plagued. They themselves are afflicted by these boils. Uh, Look again at verse 11. Verse 11. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians, and upon all the Egyptians. You see, there's a contrast here between verse 10 and verse 11. In verse 10, Moses and Aaron are able to stand before Pharaoh. But in verse 11, the magicians can no longer stand before Moses and Aaron. And so all of this evidence is staring Pharaoh right in the face. His best men, His greatest religious leaders, they have nothing to offer Him. God is proving Himself to Pharaoh. Yahweh is the true God. It's clear, crystal clear. And yet, what's the fourth thing we see? The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's no way around the clear teaching of this passage. All of the evidence should be compelling Pharaoh to fall on his knees and surrender. We look at this passage and we say, is this Pharaoh insane? Is this Pharaoh crazy? What more does God need to do? But sin does make us crazy. Pride can make us insane. And God has bigger plans being unfolded here. God has plans to rescue His children in a magnificent fashion. God's plan is to rescue His people in such a way that nations far and wide will hear of it and will fear the God of Israel. And therefore, as is His sovereign prerogative, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh continues in his stubborn rebellion. Now, we have noted in each one of these plagues how God is working through them to basically embarrass and to humiliate the gods of Egypt, right? These gods that aren't real gods but are demonic spirits being worshipped as gods. And each one of these plagues is revealing how these deities of the Egyptians are false deities, powerless against Almighty God. And in this plague, we see that all of those gods who the Egyptians trusted for health and for well-being are now totally overpowered by the will of God. Now, there are a number of gods that the Egyptians trusted for health and for for fitness, but perhaps none was looked to more for physical health and protection than the goddess Sekhmet. Sekhmet. Philip Ryken mentions that Sekhmet was the most common deity looked to by the Egyptians for dealing with disease. In fact, the priests who served this goddess were, formed one of the oldest medical fraternities in human history. Uh, this goddess was so important in Egyptian culture that one pharaoh, Amenemhat I, actually moved the capital of Egypt to the city that served as the center for Sekhmet's cult. Uh, she was typically pictured as a lioness. And live lions were kept inside her temples. Uh, she was seen as a protector, especially the protector of Pharaoh as he goes out to war. And it may have been in this role as a protector that Sekmet became associated with medicine and with healing and with bodily health. Sekhmet was said to have the power to create epidemics. And she was said to have the power to end epidemics. And Egyptians would commonly wear amulets and other objects with her image to ward off disease. And so the message that God is sending to the Egyptians is that neither Segment nor any other of their false gods ultimately has sovereign sway over health and disease. It is God and God alone who holds our health in His hands. Now we might... Look down on the ancient Egyptians for looking elsewhere rather than to God for their health. But do we not see this same temptation in our own lives? Are we not tempted to put our trust in our modern health systems and all of our technology and all of our doctors with their medical skill? Are we not tempted to assume... Are we not tempted to assume that when we go to the doctor or to the hospital, they will have the power to make us well? And yet at the end of the day, all of our best doctors and all of our best nurses and the very best of our medicines and the very best of our modern procedures, they are only as effective as God would have them be. Those who work in the medical fields, and we have many here in our church, would be the first to tell you that while they can do what they can do, even modern medicine has its limits. At the end of the day, your health lies in the hand of God. We must look to Him, trust Him, cry out to Him for health. And when He chooses to bring ailments to upon us, and one day death itself... We should be able to receive these with faith in our hearts, trusting that God is good and that He will care for our souls. This body will one day be placed in the ground, but it will be resurrected and it will be made brand new. And on that great resurrection day, we will see that our God truly is the great physician Yes, He is the great physician of our souls, but our God is also the great physician of our bodies. And so while we should thank God for the days in which we live and the medicine available to us and those who uh, give their lives to, to medical services and caring for our bodies, at the end of the day, where must our trust be? In God and God alone. Now we come to the prophetic lesson of this plague. We've seen before that the book of Revelation looks back to Exodus and these plagues to help us understand what we should be expecting from God right here today, in these last days. As we're looking forward to a final judgment to come, there are plagues being poured out on this world, even now, to wake people up and to warn them to be ready. And So what is the prophetic lesson of This plague? Well, like so many others, uh, we find the answer in Revelation 16. It's the same chapter where John speaks of water being turned into blood, frogs coming forth on the earth. And in Revelation chapter 16, uh, he says this in verse 2 So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So God reveals to us in the book of Revelation that during these last days we should expect to see physical afflictions coming upon those who are ungodly and worldly, rejecting His truth. The word sores in Revelation 16.2 is the same as the great Greek word used to translate boils, here in Exodus 9. So Revelation looks back at this Exodus account and back at what God said to His people in Deuteronomy and He says that those who walk in the path of evil should expect to be cursed with physical afflictions. Sickness is a judgment from God upon the ungodly. Now please don't misunderstand. Sickness doesn't just come to the ungodly. God also uses sickness for sanctifying purposes in the life of His children. How many senior adults have found themselves slowly going through physical affliction after physical affliction, and what is God doing? He's creating homesickness in their hearts. He's causing them to become less worldly-minded, more heavenly-minded, preparing them so that when it's their time to go, they're ready to see the face of Christ. Yes, they're going to miss their kids. They're going to miss their grandkids, but they're ready. They're ready to see Christ. So sickness comes to God's people for sanctifying purposes. Children of God get sick so that they may be humbled. Sometimes Christians begin to get too caught up in the stuff of this world and the stuff of this life and God uses sickness to grab our attention back to what really matters. Right? God puts us on our backs so that we can look up again and see him. But for unbelievers, the purpose of sickness is different. It's not meant to sanctify them. It's a judgment for sin. And it's a warning. Of a greater judgment to come. In Revelation 16, these boils are just the first bowl of God's wrath. And there are six more that follow. And just like the ten plagues in Exodus, each plague gets more and more severe until you reach that climactic seventh bowl, which is the end of all things, the great day of judgment. God is gracious. Sometimes He uses sickness and injuries and ailments to wake people up to their sinful condition. I bet we've all known people like that who were living their own life their own way and God used something with their health to grab their attention and to bring them to Christ before it was too late. For those who harden their heart like Pharaoh, sickness is just the beginning because death is coming. After death is the day of recompense. The day when all our sins will be laid before us. And those who continued to harden their hearts and to rebel against God like Pharaoh, they will find themselves cast into everlasting torment. as They are justly punished for their sins. This is a sobering truth. But this is one of the most important truths that these plagues are teaching us. And so I hope you're hearing it. There is a climactic final judgment coming. Are you ready? Or are you continuing to harden your heart against God? Finally, let's notice the sixth purpose. The sixth purpose of these plagues. We've already mentioned five. Here is a sixth reason that God has ordained these ten plagues. Here they are. The sixth reason. These plagues teach us God's patience with sinners. These plagues teach us God's patience with sinners. And you may say, hmm, that's kind of an odd lesson to learn here. But it's true if you think about it. God could have just very easily killed the firstborn children of Egypt in the very first plague. How easy it would have been. how, How just. It would have been for God to have gone straight to the tenth plague, to the most severe punishment. And we would read in Exodus of the one plague rather than the ten plagues. But God is holding His hand back. His judgments are increasing incrementally in severity. And after each one of them, there's time for Pharaoh and the nation to repent. Repent. If the people would repent, if Pharaoh would repent, if Pharaoh would lead this nation in turning to Moses God and submitting to Him and letting the people go, there would be no more plagues. God is not delighting in the suffering of these people. In the first five plagues, He did not even afflict them directly. In this sixth plague, he makes them sick. And even though anthrax can be fatal, we do not read of a single death. God is holding back his hand. He's being merciful. He's being patient. He's giving them every opportunity to repent. Let me mix some of my words with those of Octavius Winslow. What is the patience of God? It is the power of God over Himself. Yes, God is sovereign over man. But God is also sovereign over Himself. Were it not for God restraining Himself, this sinful fallen world would not exist a moment longer. But God's mercy holds back His judgment. His goodness restrains his justice. His patience curbs his power. The patience of God is the only reason you or I even ever had an opportunity to be saved. The book of Proverbs says, He that rules his spirit is better than he that takes a city. Sure, it takes a great deal of power to be a warrior and to overtake a city, but Proverbs says it takes even more power to rule over yourself. Stephen Charnock said, He that can restrain his anger is stronger than all the Caesars and the Alexanders of the world who have filled the earth with their slain carcasses and ruined cities. Can you restrain your anger? Can you hold back yourself? God's slowness to anger is the greatest proof of His great power that even His creating the world or His power to dissolve it by a single word, Single word. Yes, God has dominion over His creatures. But God also has dominion over Himself. And God's patience in the face of our sin is simply amazing. So let us admire and love this amazing God of ours. Because what a God He is. When we remember how holy He is. That He is of purer eyes than to look upon sin. When we remember how powerful He is, that He looks upon the hills and they tremble. When we remember how just He is, that He is a God without iniquity, just and right is He, and that He will by no means clear the guilty. When we contemplate His infinite patience with sinners and with sin, bearing so long with them, what a God is our God. Dear sinner, this is the God whose great patience you are putting to the test by your persistent sinfulness and your continued refusal to repent. This is the God you are testing His patience with your determined unbelief and rebellion. We should be so thankful that our God is a God who delights in mercy, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Unbeliever in this room, do you despise the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Oh, that this truth might dissolve your heart and disarm your rebellion and lay you at his feet, subdued and conquered and won. Throw down your weapons. Put yourself beneath the all constraining, all victorious banner of God's love. Submit to God through Jesus Christ. Become his disciple. Become a follower of him forever. Dear Christians in this room, if our God is this patient with sinners, If He has been this patient with us, how can we not be patient with one another and with those that God brings into our lives? We are so slow to believe. We are so slow to turn from our sin. We are so slow to grow up in the faith, and yet God is tender with us. He's patient with us. Shouldn't we have that same patience towards everyone in our lives? Husbands, Wives, do you ever feel yourselves becoming impatient towards one another? Do you ever think, why won't he just grow up already? Or, why can't she just get this right? Parents, do you ever find yourself impatient with your children? Do you find yourself being short with your children? Becoming annoyed because they continue messing it up even though you've showed them how to do it ten times? whether it's a spouse or a child or a friend, someone else. Maybe they continue to fall into the same sin again and again. Maybe the kids keep running through the house and you've you've told them a thousand times not to. Your your husband or your wife keeps that bad attitude about something that you've brought it to their attention countless times. Maybe your employer keeps mistreating you in some way or your friend keeps letting you down. I can assure you of this all of the patience that love requires of you in this life does not even begin to compare with God's amazing patience towards you God cherishes you God loves you and he is patient with you because you mean so much to him You do not deserve to be valued and treasured like this. But this is God's way. God is love. He takes us and He makes us valuable. We are like precious pieces of pottery being slowly formed in the potter's hand. And He is taking His time. And He is slowly molding us until we are just right. So live in this reality. Live in God's amazing patient love towards you and in that reality find it in your heart by grace to show that same tender patience towards others in your life love them and cherish them because they bear the very image of God your spouse your children your employer your friend they have dignity because of the God who made them, and because of the God whose image they bear. And so be patient with them, as God is ever so patient with you. And may God help us to do just that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is very kind of you To give us so many warnings, both in the Bible and in our experience of the judgment to come. Father, we acknowledge that you would be just and right to condemn us with no chance to be saved. And yet, Father, you give us so much opportunity. Father, we ask that there would not be a person in this room this morning, no boy, no girl, no man, nor woman. We would not take advantage of that opportunity this morning because it could be their last. Father, would we all be ready for the last day? Father, give faith to the unbeliever in this room. Give repentance to the unrepentant person. And Father, as we're seeking to grow up in Christ, as we're seeking to follow Christ, We plead with you that you would make us a patient people. That you would help us to reflect your tenderness and your love towards others in our lives. Father, we thank you for these passages that remind us of your awesome power and sovereignty. Father, help us to have a holy reverence and fear of you in our hearts. Help us to have big thoughts of you, never small thoughts of you. Let us never think that You're a God that that can be trifled with. Father, help us also rest in You as our Father. You are the God who uses Your awesome power to save Your children and to care for Your children and to protect and provide for Your children. And so encourage us, Father, with that reality. Father, we ask that You would bring us back tonight as we continue to move forward in the study of Your awesome Word. And We ask that You would continue to do us good both as individuals, as families, and as a church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May He lift up His countenance upon you. May He give you peace. Amen.